FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We start our show today once again, for those of you who missed it when I mentioned it late last week, with the new theme music uh, composed by our wonderful engineer and composer, Jesse Nyswung, or some of you have commented on it and uh, said you like it, and so do we. Um, the legislature finished its session in the early hours this morning, and we got a lot to talk about in terms of what they did and didn't accomplish so let's get right to our panel and talk with them about what happened late last night, throughout the evening and late last night, and, and then also what we think all of this does in terms of leading toward the election campaigns that are now more than ever fully underway in the state of Georgia. It's Tuesday. My partner from the AJC is senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, how are you today? Hey, Bill. I hope you can hear me over the leaf blower next door. I know that was one of the uh, bills on the legislative uh, docket this session. And yes, how are you yeah. doing? Yeah, I'm fine. And no, we do not hear the leaf blower. I hope you can hear us. Uh, by the way, uh, anybody know, did that leaf blower bill ma- make it through? I don't think it did. Did it? Anybody know? We'll find out. We'll get somebody to uh, let us know whether it did. Meanwhile, we're also joined by the legend from Columbus, Georgia, journalist Chuck Williams, who is now at WRBL Television, but for years was the top political print reporter in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, how are you, Chuck? Did you follow the activity? You weren't up here, I don't imagine, for the no. session last night of the no. session, but you probably stayed up following it. I did, and at 9.30 last night, the governor's office, or about 9 o'clock last night, the governor's office dropped a bomb down here. They appointed a new district attorney in Muskogee County uh, to replace our old DA who is right now in prison. So it was a, there was no shortage of news down there. Yeah, uh, clearly, yeah, you've uh, gone through some pretty difficult times and you've been reporting on it. A district attorney who was uh, accused of and convicted uh, in in a a, a terrible case, actually. Yeah. So thank you for being with us uh, today. Stanley Dunlap from Georgia Recorder is here as well. Stanley, you were covering the session till late last night. Yeah, and it, it was a late night. Didn't get past get home until well past two or two thirty, and uh, and had still kind of shaking the cobwebs out of my head after a, a pretty long night and a late night flurry in the Senate where things were pretty slow most of the day, and then within the last hour things went kind of haywire. So, but I appreciate you having me on. Sure. What a surprise. Thank you for being willing to do that. I say for last, Patricia Murphy, who we have prevailed upon uh, to join us on this Tuesday of the di- edition of the show. She, of course, is a political reporter and columnist, writes the Political Insider that appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and oversees uh, the jolt. And Patricia, I really do appreciate your being willing to come on today because I know you were up till all hours last night. 
I was up. I was there with Stanley at the Capitol. Um, I didn't stay as late as he did, but I did have to get up and do the jolt this morning. So that was my crunch was on the was on the Tuesday end of my day, not the Monday end of my day. <laughs> but thanks for having okay. me, Bill. I'm, I'm excited to talk about what happened. Yeah, thank you for being here. All right, let's get right to it. Um, and I'd like to start uh, with uh, tomorrow. Let's talk with everybody about the election bill, which has gone through several iterations. Uh, it started out in the House where there were some pretty, um, th- there were some some sections of the bill that, that were very controversial uh, because they r- would call for um, inspection of the actual ballots by the public if they uh, requested it. Um, it called for uh, the GBI to be a first-line investigator of potential election uh, problems and a few other things. It got stripped down completely in the Senate, and it went back last night to the— I, well, I know, I guess it ended up back in the Senate last night, didn't it, where it— um, where, again, everything really but the GBI's role was pretty well stripped out of the bill. Yeah, I, the version that I understood kind of going into yesterday, it, it had stripped out pretty much everything controversial except allowing uh, employees a couple hours to vote on Election Day or during early voting. Um, that ultimately, that provision did not end up making it into the final bill based on some of the reporting from my, my colleague, Mark Nisi. And it looks like the, the main kind of tenet would give GBI the authority to investigate election fraud co- complaints. So they'd be able to launch inquiries, subpoena records. Um, and previously, that was something that that was under the purview of the Secretary of State's office. And I understand the Secretary of State maybe can still do that, Patricia. You might be able to fact check me on that. Um, but this adds in that extra layer of GBI, which I know that a lot of voting rights groups are really opposed to because they fear that it could lead to more police intervention, intervention in elections, could intimidate voters, that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, and I can also add that, so the GBI will be able to investigate election matters without being invited to do so by the Secretary of State's office. Right now, the GBI has election investigators, but they do that at the request of the Secretary of State's office. This way, they will be able to do that without the request from the Secretary of State. Uh, The uh, significant complaint I heard last night from Democrats was that because the head of the GBI is appointed by the governor. This, in a way, puts elections under the purview and the direction of the governor. And when you have an election coming up uh, with Governor Kemp overseeing the election portion of the investigation, um, and then, you know, potential other governors overseeing the elections of their own investigations, that's when Democrats said they get extremely worried. And so I think we're going to have a continuing um, debate over this piece of the bill and what it means and how it's um, implemented, but it is certainly passed and will become law. Ironically, Chuck, what Patricia just mentioned takes us back to 2018 uh, when Stacey Abrams and Democrats complained that Brian Kemp, at that point Secretary of State, did not recuse himself from overseeing the 2018 election. And what Patricia's talking about, very similar uh, uh, element moving forward uh, with the passage of this uh, law. Bill. It, it certainly seems to do that. I've communicated with Nancy Bourne, who 
is our director of elections in Muskogee County and one of the top ones in the state. And one thing in the bill that did get through last night, the way they understand it, is the chain of custody on the security paper. And that doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you're a local elections official, that security paper comes in rings like copy paper. And the issue is not the chain of custody, as Nancy explains it to me, is not the chain of custody when it's in an elections office. The issue is when it goes out to the 52 precincts in Muskogee County and precincts all across the state, because the trade doesn't take the whole read. So how do you keep a chain of security? They're going to have to really develop some measures on that. So it's created another level of kind of work for the local elections office with just the security on that paper. And it doesn't sound like much, but, you know, between the GB, the GBI investigate, I mean, it really is interesting to sort of see what this law did. And I'm sure other little things like that are going to pop out over the next few days. You know, people Stan, really understand. I'm sorry, Chuck, I didn't mean to interrupt you at no. the end there. Stanley, this, this is why what Chuck just said is why it takes days to sort through the flurry of action on the 40th day of a session. What actually passed, what didn't? Chuck talks about chain of custody in the Senate bill. Apparently, according to your reporting on it, uh, that chain of custody controversy uh, uh, fell by the wayside. You you say that the chain of custody uh, issue was eliminated from the measure um, and that uh, uh, so was the public inspection uh, section of the bill, right? It's um, so there's kind of the the competing with the SB 202. There's an expansion of uh, ballots that can take place under open records request, but um, also uh, one of the big issues was whether that was going to be the original paper ballots or um, or if it would just be the images. And so when they passed the uh, bill that went through last night. Um, it kept it as what what's still under um, law now, which is it would still be sealed. So that was one of the, the big issues that was, um, you know, kind of it moved back and forth. One, you know, it was it was part of different measures, and it got stripped out in the Senate, um, and then it got added back in the House bill, and then what, what finally passed was um, uh, was, was was that was not in, in, um, included which would have made it much more interesting for people to uh, potentially object to uh, elections and they kind of had to be able to get the actual records, not just images of the records, but the actual records and ballots themselves. And now, and now they can't, you know, Patricia, um, let's talk about this from a larger point of view and the political point of view. I think it's interesting uh, that according to the piece that Stanley filed that I read. um, So the bill comes back to the Senate It was the brainchild of Senate pro tem Butch Miller, who, of course, is running for lieutenant governor. Butch Miller wanted uh, provisions uh, that um, that lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, not running for reelection, a guy who has taken his stand against Donald Trump and the Trump wing of the party, while Butch Miller is obviously on the other side of that, even though he didn't get Trump's endorsement. And so it was Jeff Duncan who last night was able 
to shut down Butch Miller's efforts to make that bill more robust. And from a political point of view, that's the sort of thing that we uh, f- that's so fascinating in the final hours of a session. So to me, the state Senate, this session has been like an episode of Dynasty, you know, for like all of these competing <laughs> interests and dynastic families and um, people, rivals and back chain negotiations. Um, but it's true that Butch Miller's original vision for election reform was also to possibly ban ballot boxes entirely. There were, although this bill does seem like it uh, is going to go in and uh, continue to make modifications, especially to the way election workers have to function during elections. Um, It does not have some of the most onerous and restrictive concepts that were floated at the beginning of this session. And something that B. Wynn said uh, during this debate I thought was really fascinating because she, too, is she is running for secretary of state. as a Democrat and will be running against um, either Brad Raffensperger, whoever wins that Republican primary. And she said to the Republicans in the House chamber, it doesn't matter what you do with this bill, your voters are never going to believe what you're saying because your voters don't face facts talking about elections. And so she said, you know what, the details of this are almost irrelevant for the people you're trying to please. And in the meantime, you're making it much harder for people to function as volunteer election workers and paid election workers and people overseeing elections because there are a lot of pieces in this bill meant to keep track of ballots, meant to make sure that elections are not just uh, fair, but verifiably fair to a level of detail that is could be quite onerous for your average bear in a small county. Um, but this is really all about the 2020 elections, to be honest with you. And a big piece that uh, David Ralston wanted to change is that GBI piece because he and Brad Raffensperger have had an ongoing feud for quite some time. He does not trust Brad Raffensperger. He does trust the governor. And I think that's a big uh, backstory behind why that piece of the bill was proposed and made it in. So there's a lot happening in this bill. Yeah, and it's been interesting to to try and keep track of all this this debate. And I think an ongoing theme that you've you've heard is is I know that there's been an issue in many counties to be able to attract and retain election workers uh, to work the polls every day or every uh, cycle. And it's something that you've heard Democrats talk about even last night as they were railing against this bill, saying you know even though you stripped away many of these provisions that that you know Democrats thought were terrible. Um, even just this GBI slice could make it harder to keep poll workers, um, especially if they're already kind of fearing for their safety, um, you know, kind of given the the climate that we're in. Um, another argument you heard, you know, initially Governor Kemp said he wasn't interested in doing any other elections overhauls after SB 202 was enacted. Um, and we really, other than the Atlanta mayorals race, we haven't had a, a big test of kind of what that looks like since it's been enacted. So I think a lot of folks were caught off guard as this uh, bill was introduced and made its way through the process. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, this this primary is only, you know, less than two months away. Um, so So how do election workers implement um, all of these new regulations? All right. Um, Patricia, did you want to add something? You're ready to move on to another uh, aspect of what happened last night. I think there's so much else to talk about. I think we can. We have a lot to cover. 
Well, then let me start with you on the next one. Um, they finally, they approved the budget, 30 point whatever it is, billion dollar budget uh, late last night. Um, and of course, within that was the $2,000 raise for teachers, which Governor Kemp had promised them from the time he ran his first campaign for governor, uh, that $5,000 uh, total raise. So he's going to get some credit from them for that, probably. At the same time, Patricia, they uh, also last night passed this bill, which will have a huge influence on how teachers in schools can teach about race. And it's just, of course, one of any number of measures that uh, have passed that really do put the state right in the classroom in terms of issues like what books can be read, um, uh, what th- uh, subject can race be taught in the classroom, and uh, you know, can masks be required by a school, or is it parents who have to decide? So it's interesting, Patricia. A two thousand dollar raise is great, but by the time the election rolls around, and assuming Kemp is the nominee, maybe you forget about the two thousand dollars and are thinking about how your work as a teacher has been affected. Yeah, you know, I've thought a lot about how teachers must be feeling coming out of this legislative session if they've had a minute to um, get away from everything else that they have to do and watch what this legislature has done. It's really a set of mixed messages to say we must reward the heroic teachers. And that's a word that Governor Kemp used in his state of the state address for everything they've done during COVID. And at the same time, there has really been a level of suspicion cast upon teachers um, in this state. Can we trust teachers to teach our kids what they should be learning? Can we trust what they're saying to our children, um, that it's not something that is divisive and makes them feel bad about themselves um, and is inappropriate or possibly obscene? And so um, with that uh, tenor, they have gone in and passed this bill, which got final passage last night, to prevent teachers from teaching, quote, uh, nine specific divisive concepts. And some of those are very much, everyone would agree, um, nobody is inferior based on the color of their skin. Um, nobody, no, there are no inherent traits based on race that make a person inferior or superior. Everybody agrees with that. But there are more pieces of that that say, you know, no single individual should be made to feel uh, guilty or responsible for the actions of another individual of that person's race. I mean, it gets down to a level of granularity. And then when you're talking about people's feelings, how does this make me feel? How does this make a child feel? What level of responsibility does a teacher carry for that? And what areas will teachers be comfortable wading into, even if it's history that is um, difficult but not divisive? What, what is the legislature doing telling them uh, how to proceed with that? We have local school boards that typically do that. We have principals who we hire to handle that. And so it is uh, getting into a level of classroom direction that I think will make teachers feel very concerned. But again, Chuck, this is another one of those measures that Republicans are passing in legislatures across the country uh, as they look to the 2022 election cycle. It is proven uh, to be a popular issue among their base. About it, Bill. I mean, that, that's where we are. I mean, law, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this, but laws and politics have always been connected. Now it's in a way that there's their bills, parts of this bill, that are just strictly designed 
to get votes. And that's what this is about. And it's primary votes, too, mainly. I mean, if you look at it, this I don't know how this will play in the general. Let's see what happens with it. But it's a, it's a primary issue. Stanley, I want to uh, talk to you about this for a minute. Um, you're African-American. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about the critical race theory debate is it mostly has revolved around how white students will feel if they are taught about the slave ancestry of Georgia. Um, not so much is it talked about how black students will feel uh, if they are taught about the fact that their ancestors were slaves. In the same way, I'm Jewish. If, if, the, if teaching about the Holocaust will make me feel bad about what happened to Jews in the Holocaust, has, have teachers, in fact, got no right to teach? It's very troubling, Stanley, to try to figure out what this kind of squishy bill is all about. Yeah, I think that's uh, a great point, because uh, it often has been through the lens of, to be honest, kind of angry white parents that have shown up to, uh, you know, school board meetings or, or kind of made the calls to uh, a lot of these le legislators that, that did back this uh you know, this notion that, that dates back for even back going to the Trump administration where we saw this kind of become a major issue um, back then. But yeah, so, so, you know, you've heard that during the presentations from, from some of the legislators that have, you know, sponsored the bill that the idea is also for whether you're black or Jewish that you shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable or inferior based off of this, which um, I, I, I guess is kind of them trying to answer the concerns that you raised, but I think the, the notion is history is uh, uncomfortable in general. And so <laughs> I don't know how you can really teach a true version of what's happened and the impact of systematic racism and, um, you know, how it even maybe affects uh, society today without, you know, sometimes making people feel uncomfortable. It doesn't mean you have to tell them specifically that that student, you are inferior or you are superior per se to, you know, uh, you know, call, cause what they say more division, but <laughs> the the effects of, of history uh, isn't kind, and so I don't know how you can actually teach a true, uh, well, truly what's happened without, uh, you know, at, at at all not making somebody uncomfortable on either side. Tomorrow. You know, Patricia. I can't remember if it was Patricia or Bill. You used the word "squishy" to to describe yeah. um, the way this bill is worded, and that's what makes it so tough. Because I know that you still are able to teach about the Civil War or civil rights legislation, but I think there's a a big fear that this will lead to a giant kind of chilling effect among teachers who will feel scared to broach any topic that's remotely controversial. And one of the um, one of the points in the bill that I think has led to a lot of fear among teaching groups is it would establish a process to vet parents' allegations that some of these more divisive concepts have been taught. So even if the teacher knows that at the end of the day they were in the right, um, they still have to go through this really like long and tortured process that's a giant headache on top of what they're already trying to do, all the work that they already have. And so I think there's a fear that it'll, you know, some teachers will rather not want to talk about things at all rather than get into these fights with parents. Patricia? 
Um, Bill, you had talked about sort of uh, what is divisive and how does it make black students feel? There was a black lawmaker during the Senate debate who said, well, if we are banning divisive concepts, we should also talk about banning Confederate mascots because that is divisive. Mm -hmm. And the immediate response from the white lawmaker was, that's not divisive. That's sensitive. I, that, I wouldn't get into mascots because that's mm. real sensitive. Don't don't talk about the rebels because that is going to bother some people. And that is exactly the problem with a bill like this. Something that's divisive to one person is important to discuss from, for another person based on where you're coming from. And so um, to legislate about people's feelings, to legislate about what teachers are doing between 10 and 11 during history class or during social studies class um, is very, very difficult. And I would be very surprised if there weren't legal challenges to this at some point, too. All right, let's do this. Uh, thank you for that conversation. There's a few more bills I'd really love to talk about, including what happened with the transgender sports uh, legislation. There was a late push to try to get it through. We'll talk about what actually happened and more when Political Rewind continues. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We've got a terrific uh, panel of uh, people who cover politics, uh, not necessarily full-time, but a good part of their time. They include my Tuesday partner from the AJC, Tamara Hallerman, Chuck Williams from WRBL-TV, uh, Stanley Dunlap from Georgia Recorder, and Patricia Murphy uh, from the AJC as well, who has graciously agreed to join us. Uh, out of rotation, Patricia. <laughs> You're obviously usually with us on Fridays, but we're so glad to have you here uh, uh, today. And as long as I've got, you've got the ball in your court. So uh, there was this effort to pass a bill which would require that uh, students could participate in sports only according to the sex on their birth certificate. Once again, part of a national Republican effort uh, to uh, make transgendered individuals, transgender athletes, uh, a part of their effort to win elections uh, uh, coming up. But the bill did not, in fact, get a final passage, but it's still moving forward f because of a study committee, right? Uh, it's, well, and a little bit more than that, actually. Um, okay. as, the, as the bill that we were talking about on divisive concepts came to the floor of the House, a Democratic member stood up and said, I'm sorry, am I looking at language on here about transgender sports? And with embedded within the divisive concepts bill was new language about uh, transgender sports. And it both creates a study committee to look at the issue of transgender athletes in schools and sports. Um, but it also uh, gives the uh, governing authority over high school sports in Georgia the authority to implement limits or bans or changes to who is eligible to participate in sports in Georgia high schools, public and private. And uh, Speaker Ralston uh, compared that to the NCAA having its own sets of regulations for who and how can participate in sports based on their gender and their gender identity. Um, so this was something that came as a total shock to Democrats. This was after 1130 at night with the midnight clock uh, fast approaching um, and Democrats absolutely, I would say apoplectic, did not know this was coming. We knew that this bill was 
out there but not moving. Uh, the governor had not talked about it much until uh, yesterday. And uh, he's talked about it in his state of the state. And then uh, in the evening, he came to each chamber to lay out his priorities and also said, and I would also urge you to look at passing uh, fairness in girls sports. And so that was a nod by the governor. It's important to him. Uh, it was a nod to the chambers, uh, find a way to get it in there. This does represent a compromise from um, its uh, watered down version of what was the original language, um, but it will change uh, who's eligible to, to be in sports and, and look at a way to put it into code in the future. Oh, it will. Then I misread a story that I saw this morning, which said it was moving to a study committee uh, to look at further action down the line. Oh, okay. All right. As far Thank as I you understand, for that. Chuck, Stanley, you can correct me. That's what the speaker said last night. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, Ralph um, Williams wrote about that, and, and so I kind of briefly was able to read over, and I believe there's a, a 10 person committee that's also involved with that, that this legislation set forth. Um, and so I think kind of there's what Patricia said is, is correct, and there's kind of both. Um, but, but yeah, it's it's certainly water. It's certainly watered down, but it's something that is clearly, uh, you know, I think the people who oppose this measure in the first place are, aren't happy that it's even, you know, got to this point in the kind of the chicanery that went on to get it, um, you know, passed in the first place uh, last night where it wasn't mentioned uh, when it came on the Senate side at all when it was introduced, the substitute, and uh, there was a lot of uh, pushback from the Democrats to, to try to get it up to, to doom the legislation, but didn't have enough votes um, in the end. Chuck? Here's, here's the most interesting part to me, and Patricia touched on it. It basically pushes the decision down to the Georgia High School Association. It is a very, very powerful organization that essentially operates off public funds, off of money that's, that's gleaned from public high schools and their athletic events and their, the championship playoffs. That organization, and this is the recovering sports editor, that organization has incredible power and has always had that power. Some people have claimed that organization has abused that power, and there have even been pushes previously in the General Assembly to limit the power of that organization. And for at the 11th hour to essentially make that organization the gatekeeper of this is fascinating to me. That's like, and you know, I wonder if Georgia High School Association woke up in Thomas this morning going, whoa, what did they just do to us? You know, I mean, <laughs> this is, this is, that's the interesting piece of it to me, Bill. That's really a good point, Chuck. You know, tomorrow, <laughs> Chuck makes such a great point. Suddenly, okay, it's now yours uh, to deal with, uh, GHSA. <laughs> Throw the grenade into their lap. Um, and certainly, you know, it seemed like Speaker Ralston, it, this didn't seem like this was an issue that he wanted to deal with. But it clearly was a priority of the governor, which he reminded everybody yesterday. And in the comments that, that Speaker Ralston gave to my colleagues, he made it seem like, this was a palatable compromise that conservatives could live with. I wonder if it's being punted in, or, you know, kind of lobbed into the lap of the Georgia High School Association who might make a determination. And then if the legislature
legislature doesn't like it, they'll they'll step in in a couple years. Um, and it was interesting to compare them to what the NCAA or the Olympics has kind of done with transgender athletes, which I believe has some sort of regulation that says if you're on hormones for about a year, then you're allowed to participate as the um, as the gender with which you identify. So I'll be curious to see if they come out with a similar um, ruling, if they try and kind of waffle a little bit until this study committee weighs in, or whether the legislature is expecting them to weigh in, and then only later they'll come in and, and kind of fight whatever it is. Yeah, and Bill, it's possible that the um, that they could do nothing, that they could wait, that they could hold off, as Tamar said, until the study committee comes back. But what this bill did not do was write into Georgia code, write into Georgia law, a ban on transgender athletes. And right. I think the step of passing a law to ban um, children from participating in sports, um, when frankly, very little is known about the scope of the situation. Nobody in that legislature could say how many transgender athletes are even in Georgia participating in sports. The sponsor of this bill called it preventative legislation. And so it was very clear that this bill was not something that the speaker wanted to put in to law, but um, the base is demanding something. And this is what it looks like right now. And that's exactly the point that I wanted to add on top of that is, is that we're talking about really tiny numbers of folks. And you, you talk to the sponsors, you know, the Republican sponsors of this legislation, and they don't have clear cut examples other than some well-known cases that happened in Connecticut a couple of years ago um, with runners. I know in the um, NCAA swimming championships, which were um, held in Atlanta recently, there was a transgender woman from the University of Pennsylvania um, who was able to set some records. A lot of people have pointed to her performance to kind of talk about why they think this is needed. Um, and I, I know that a lot of groups that represent LGBTQ people warn a lot about the psychological effects of all of this on transgender teens who are like 50% more likely um, to be suicidal, who need that acceptance in their lives, and, and school sports teams can sometimes provide that. Uh, but overall, the numbers are tiny. Um, I know in Utah, which has a Republican governor who, who just vetoed similar legislation, he mentioned how this would impact four transgender teenagers, four. Um, and, and he said, you know, if, if school sports can help uh, these four teenagers, then let's let them play it. I, you know, we don't know how many people there are in Georgia, but it might be a similar number. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Utah. Not only did the Republican governor of Utah, who is a very conservative governor, veto the, this bill, so did the Republican conservative governor of Indiana. And yet this is a measure that uh, Brian Kemp has showcased from uh, the very beginning of the session. And oh, by the way, Chuck, this is another uh, measure that's red meat for the base. It is. It is. I wonder if the Republican governor in Utah is facing a primary challenge from a former U.S. senator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go to one more issue uh, before we move on. Uh, and, and, oh, and I'd also open it up to any of you if you have a couple of other things you want to talk about. But, Chuck, um, once again, again last night, despite the fact there are families in Georgia that have a I think desperate need is not an exaggeration for cannabis, cannabinoid oil, uh, to help their children uh, with seizure issues and other conditions that the oil can satisfy. And despite the fact that we've now gone a couple sessions since 
the uh, state said the legislature approved the use of the oil. There's still no system for legally distributing it. Families cannot legally get this. Why? Why are we still struggling with this issue, Chuck? You know, I don't know. I mean, I can't even begin to answer your question. I mean, marijuana in some parts, I mean, I just covered a murder trial for two and a half weeks. A marijuana dealer was killed and 16 pounds of weed was stolen from his vehicle and the thing. You know, it's, you sit there and you look at things that are legal in other states that aren't legal here. And, and I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying I don't understand it. I don't understand why our politics haven't hit a point that the families that need this cannabis oil and need the ability to use it as treatment can't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, I'll throw up another one, Bill. I mean, we're sitting here where you can place a sports bet all over the country on your phone. That bill died last night. You know, Mm -hmm. in Georgia, I couldn't have bet on the NCAA championship game last night. But if I'd gone up to Tennessee or if I had been in Michigan where those laws are legal, I could have made it. And they're leaving a lot of money on the table that could benefit Georgia Lottery and other programs from people that want to bet responsibly and would use these gaming apps, to FanDuel and Caesars and all that, to do so. Stanley, want to weigh in on uh, either or both of those? Uh, I'll, I'll talk especially about the, uh, the sports wagering. and uh, kind of interesting last year when the big push began early in the session and you, you had to uh, – professional sports leagues um, in, in Georgia and, and around Atlanta that were really gung-ho about at least the sports wagering part. And I think Chuck brought up the point that at least when you think about sports betting, there really really isn't much infrastructure that you would have to build with, whether you're doing horse race tracks or casinos. And so they're not going to bring in as many jobs, but there's also not as much of an initial investment needed to build the infrastructure around that which you already have that in place when you're talking about online sports wagering or, you know, stuff that would be available if you went to an Atlanta Hawks games to be able to do that would be much easier to put in place and money's already being spent. And it would just be kind of being able to tax that or or collect fees off of that. That would just, um, I want to say free money, but you know, it's people that are, are, you know, spending their money to, to choose to do that, but it doesn't take nearly as much of an investment, um, on the end of either companies or, you know, somehow the state somehow being involved with property that all of a sudden, you know, 20, 20 years down the line is it being used for what it was intentionally planned for. Uh, Patricia, we mentioned on the show yesterday that any kind of gambling measure that comes along, I mean, they've been trying to get gambling legalized in one form or another for many years in the state, in the state legislature, but it's hard not to go back to uh, Governor Zell Miller, which we mentioned on the show yesterday. He was able to get elected governor because he wanted to establish a lottery to help fund education. But once uh, he was elected and tried to put the mechanisms for having lottery in place, uh, conservative Christians particularly rebelled against him. They opposed gambling outright. It came close for a while. It looked like he might lose reelection. Uh, on that issue, among others, but that one primarily. And I think there's still a legacy of that as 
uh, legislators debate gambling in our state today? Yes, and I would say it's not just legislators. I would say it's the governor as well. The missing ingredient yeah. from this gambling effort has been um, the governor. This has this was not one of his top priorities, and uh, everybody knows it's such a heavy lift. It's going to require not just the governor saying he's interested in it, but the governor jamming it through and really convincing people that they need to get on board. Um, also, what is missing was an agreement on what to do with the money that came in from gambling. Um, mm-hmm. There was no single hope scholarship. There was no single, we can all agree that this would make everybody in the state's lives better and lift all boats. It was all kind of a hodgepodge of, well, you could have part, you could have part, you could have part, maybe I could have part, you know. So um, gambling never seemed to get past the rumor stage because uh, um, for that reason, for those two reasons, I think. And then on cannabis, I noticed last night there were a number of lobbyists in the building um, for cannabis companies. And um, I've not done any deep reporting on that, but uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, friction from cannabis companies who are trying to get that business. Some of them have been approved, some have not. Some are angry they were not approved. Um, and that seems to be part of the problem on this cannabis bill. It fell by a single vote in the Senate. Yeah, wow. exactly. Um, and it can't help but feel terribly sympathetic to families who need this oil. They find ways to get it, but it's illegal uh, for them uh, to uh, be able to bring it into the state. All right, let's do this. Let's take our final break of the show and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. couple of quick notes uh, before I continue with the panel. Uh, number one, we're going to step away from politics tomorrow. We're going to talk about COVID. Where the heck do we stand right now with this new subvariant? It seems to be gathering momentum, certainly in England and other European countries. We're told it's heading this way. Uh, what do we need to do to protect ourselves? We're going to have uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, one of the real uh, leading experts on uh, epidemiological issues on the show, along with Amber Schmidtke, who is a data miner who probably has a better picture in detail about how COVID is uh, acting in uh, our state and others around the country. I'm looking forward very much to that show tomorrow. And one other quick note, uh, tomorrow is a, a Political Rewind newsletter day. If you're not a subscriber, we'd love to have you join us. Go to gpb.org newsletter. Um, You know, I always try to find some political items, but I also look for things that are, I think, might be of added interest to you. So I'm working right now tomorrow on a little blurb about a a new play that the Broadway director, Kenny Leon, who makes his home here in Atlanta, is staging in Chicago right now that I was lucky enough to see uh, when I was up there last week. And it's another example of Kenny Leon writing about how... um, uh, people, diverse people, African-Americans and white people, despite all of the issues we face, what are our commonalities? How do we come back together? It's a beautiful, beautiful play. And if you get the newsletter, you'll hear more about it. All right. Let's turn to uh, other political news for a couple of minutes. Um, Patricia, I, I don't know what to make of this latest story about Raphael Warnock's ongoing unfortunately, family problems with an ex-wife. 
Um, they clearly have had a very bitter separating of the ways when he was running for office. She accused him of running over her foot when he backed his car out of a garage. We don't have to relive that right now. And now there's this um, fight apparently over whether she can take the children out of state because she wants to study at Harvard. Just give me a sense, especially in the context of Hershel Walker, whose personal problems are going to play a role. What do you make of this story about Warnock? So this story um, is... Uh, difficult because Raphael Warnock has very young children, and I think there is a level of sensitivity to their privacy. Um, his wife is very, very private, and I'm a little surprised that these court records are not under seal, to be honest with you, because mm. he is such a private person. Um, at the same time, um, Raphael Warnock uh, does – this is his reality. He is divorced. Um, his wife, who is uh, really a scholar – um, would like to move to Boston. And there appears to be, um, from the outside looking in with one person's uh, input into the story, there appears to be an obvious conflict about that. His office um, responded in a written statement and said that uh, Senator Warnock is proud to uh, co-parent um, with his ex-wife, uh, that he um, you know, loves his children very much, and really left it at that. He, well, it, it has been very obvious that he has never campaigned with his children. He has never, he rarely mentions his children at all in any context. And I think that's an effort to protect their privacy. Um, but it is, uh, again, it's just part of his reality. Uh, and uh, when you compare it to Herschel Walker's situation, that is very different because we're talking about multiple police reports um, and uh, uh, Herschel Walker admitting in his book and detailing in his book how he held a gun to his wife's head threatened her life multiple times. Um, so it is a little bit apples and oranges, but it does put the Democrats in a situation where somebody said to me, kind of an operative from a different state, said, oh, I'm sure the Democrats are going to go after Herschel Walker for his family uh, problems. And I said, I'm not so sure. I don't think that the Warnock campaign or the Democrats writ large want to go down that path specifically because uh, they, they really jealously guard Raphael Warnock's privacy in the family as well. Tamara? Yeah, I mean, it's a really icky issue for either side to weigh into. I'm expecting people will because that's just politics these days. But I think folks are very cognizant of the fact if you're, um, you know, if you're a Republican who's going to wade into the Warnock stuff, then Democrats can point right back at, at the Herschel Walker stuff. But then you start getting into issues when it comes to mental health. Um, you know, Herschel Walker has been very open about talking about um, his multiple personality disorder and that sort of thing. Um, and so it's, it's icky, but I do expect people will go there. You know, Chuck, I, you and I are both old enough to remember there were days when we as political journalists were always were very reluctant to dip into the personal problems that candidates have. Now uh, it's expected. It is. And, you know, I guess we can thank Gary Hart for that uh, in many ways. But if you look, mm. if, I mean, I want to comment on something Tamar just said. You know, in this day and this time, there's very little to stop politicians on the campaign trail to weighing into icky issues. Icky issues now appeal to people that 
or you want to use those icky issues for their own personal thing. I think that's going to be my new phrase this year is icky issues. I like that. Uh, uh, I won't steal that. Uh, but, yeah. I can't wait to watch it on WRBL, Chuck Williams' <laughs> icky issues. <laughs> All right, uh, let, let's give Stanley a chance. I want to say very quickly, Stanley, uh, Chuck talks about Gary Hart. He's right. I was actually on that campaign and on the road <laughs> with Gary Hart when <laughs> that scandal broke. And remember how reluctant journalists traveling with him were to report on it because we thought maybe this is unfair. Times have certainly changed. <laughs> and and I, I'm not aware of <laughs> Quite the, the history of you know the, behind that uh, particular I guess, scandal, but um, I think it is interesting that you know a lot of the noise is going to come from uh, outside of the campaigns, especially in this case with with Walker and, and Warnock. Whereas you know maybe the you know depending on which side you're on, you're going to kind of maybe use that um, whether you're you know talking or, or sending out emails or or um, you know posting on social media, but you know, Herschel Walker's campaign or, or Raphael Wardock's campaign are not going to kind of wade into those waters. So it's kind of outside noise uh, that, that's percolating around that. Tamara, let me give you a last word before we got to go. Sure. I mean, I think the campaigns have a decision to make and who exactly they want to appeal to. Stuff like that will really help you fundraise with your base, get them good and outraged for something that'll help open up people's pocketbooks. At the same time, when you start looking toward a general election, you want to start winning over independent voters, people sitting on the fence, those elusive suburban women that everyone is um, is trying to catch. And I can see a group like that being really turned off by kind of wading into mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, they, they haven't been paying attention or maybe Maybe folks have their own divorce or custody issues that they're dealing with and, and don't want campaigns to get into that dirty ickiness, if we're going to keep using that term. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Chuck Williams, you've come up with a new way for us to talk about the personal uh, problems that candidates are facing, the icky factor. Uh, that's it. We're completely out of time for today's show. Chuck, uh, WRBL-TV, thank you so much for being with us today after a late night last night. Patricia Murphy, same for you, that you were up last night and yet back up early this morning to uh, put the jolt out. Uh, Stanley Dunlop, same for you. You stayed up late and you made it here uh, this morning. So thanks for that. Tamar Hellerman, always glad that you're my partner on the Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. My thanks also, of course, to Jesse Neiswanger, to Sam Burmistaws, and Natalie Mendenhall for their work on Political Rewind. We're back with a brand new show again tomorrow. As I said, we're going to be talking about COVID and uh, have one of the leading experts in the country, Carlos Del Rio, uh, join us uh, with his advice on how we need to deal with the pandemic at this stage. So uh, until tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. I look forward to seeing all of you back again. In the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.